Leviticus chapter 15. We're going to start. Uh, is Jim Fredericks in the room? Did I hear him? He's outside, that figures, okay. Yeah, I need him and he's not here, and whenever I don't need him, he's all over. I'm just kidding, I love Jim. He's a great, great brother. Um, Leviticus 15, let's pick it up in verse 19. Uh, when a woman has a discharge and it consists of blood from her body, she will be unclean because of her menstruation for seven days. Everyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Anything she lies on during her menstruation will become unclean, and anything she sits on will become unclean. Everyone who touches her bed is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Everyone who touches any furniture she was sitting on is to wash his clothes, bathe with water. If the discharge is on the bed of the furniture that he was sitting on, when it touches, it will be clean and it will be unclean until evening. If a man sleeps with her and blood from her menstruation gets on him, he will be unclean for seven days and every bed he lies on will become unclean. Verse 31, you must keep the Israelites from their uncleanness so that they do not die by defiling my tabernacle among them. This is the law for someone with a discharge. Welcome to Creekside. (laughs) Um, Some of you are probably on your way out right now. (laughs) Hang tight. This isn't shock value. I am going somewhere with this, and it does apply to today's lesson. Remember, uh, as I read this text... This this was you know this was written for a people three to five millennia ago. This is a nomadic people who lived in the desert of Saudi Arabia long before the word hygiene was ever in anybody's vocabulary. Now this is so foreign to our culture today, but this is really about more than just simply uncleanness. It has a lot to do with how they wanted to deal and understand hygiene. And, and, and as you read through this, if you, some of you that have read the Bible and understand a little bit about the Bible, you know that, that there was unclean and there was clean in the Bible. And if a person was unclean, like a woman such as this, and if you kept reading, I wasn't going to go into that part. But if you read the next part, it talked about men, but that doesn't apply to what we're talking about today, so I didn't go there. Sorry, ladies, and uh, good for us men. But... Um, <laughs> See, the sad thing is, loved ones, is back in that day, if you were unclean and, 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 and you would have had this problem, and, and, and we're not talking about just the seven-day cycle, but if this would have been an issue for you that would have been ongoing, you couldn't touch. Uh, you couldn't be touched. You literally couldn't go into the villages and walk around. You couldn't go into the public market and and enjoy the commerce of what was taking place there. You couldn't walk through the village. You couldn't embrace. You couldn't touch. You couldn't make love. You couldn't even have your children come up and have their, their, their sweet little hands rub your face if you were considered unclean as in this reading. Now, if you skip over to Numbers chapter 15, just a few pages. Numbers 15. 
it's always important to remember that what you see in the Old Testament uh, oftentimes points a lot to the New Testament. So in that first part, we see that a woman with an ongoing flow of blood would have been cut off from society. She would have been cut off from the tabernacle, the, tap, the temple, God's presence. So this would have been a serious problem for any woman dealing with this. So Numbers 15, if you pick it up in verse 37, it says this, Now the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout the generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments. And they're to put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and not become unfaithful by following your own heart and your own ways. This way you'll remember and obey, my, obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God and I am your Lord. See, back then, men and many even Orthodox Jews today, they wear a, pra, a prayer shawl. And I was going to ask Jim to go get that for me because I forgot it in my office. Somebody recently kind of gave me one and blessed me with it. But it's a rectangular um, mantle that kind of looked like a, a small blanket that, that, that the, the, the men would wear. And, and you see here that God commands them to put tassels. Uh, the Hebrew word is tzitzit. Put tzitzits, tassels, at the end of this. And a lot of them have put 613 threads so that it represented all of God's commands so that it would be this, it, it would be this visual reminder, a memory device of living in the commands of God every day and in every way. And we see how this prayer shawl, they, they show up in scriptures not, not irregularly. Now, if you would turn over to the book of Malachi, that's the last book of the Bible. I'm sorry, last book, yeah, see? Who's this guy preaching anyway? I mean, really. It's the last book of the Old Testament before Jesus comes. But after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. So these are important words that the prophet Malachi speaks. Go to chapter 4. This is a prophetic statement about Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to be coming as the incarnate God. So at verse 1, it says, For indeed the day is coming, it's burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. There's a day of judgment coming, with, with the, and, and Jesus himself ushers it in. It says, The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. Ah, here's the hope. That's what prophets do. They, they speak and declare, and then they always give you hope. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, that's another name for Jesus Christ. He's got the brightness of the sun and he's righteous, he's perfect. But when the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, then you'll go out and you'll playfully jump like calves from the stall. There'll be a new youth and fullness to you. But what I want you to see there is you remember in Numbers where it says, on the corners, on the corners of that shawl, you put tassels, is it? Well, the, the, the word there for corners is canop. Ah, thank you, Jimbo. I knew you'd get the word. Appreciate it. It would be something like this. This would be like a, a prayer shawl, and they would wear it often, and, and those little tassels there would be the reminders that, uh, oh, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. 
and you'd be walking and you would remember it and see it and know it and live it. And the, so that's the tassels, that's the tzidzit. But it says you put them on the corners over here. And, and, and the corners there, it's a, a word uh, in the Hebrew, kanap. And it's interesting because that's the word corners. But it says here in Malachi 4, 2, he, he says that, that the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. And that word wings is, is canop. It's the same word as corners, where the tassels would be connected. And now you're going, okay, good. I'm totally confused. Good. We're going to come back to that in just a second. I want you to take a couple of minutes, and, uh, and just at your table there, I want you to re- review those questions. There's two questions, and I'd like for you to pick one, and you can have just, you, you got to do about 45 seconds, so look it over, think about it, and say, and kind of answer, choose one of those questions. You can pass if you're new here, or you're a high introvert, please feel free to pass, you don't have to talk, but there's two questions. Choose one and just quickly go around the table and say, this is my thought. Okay? Got a couple minutes. Let's go ahead and do that. We've talked about issues of blood. We've talked about tassels. And we've talked about corners. And you're still trying to probably figure out, even after your discussion, how this all fits in. And it will. Have you ever been under the spotlight? Where you felt like only you are being seen and nothing or nobody else. And you said, I would get, and, and something happens. And you just feel exposed and you just want to get out of here. I was thinking, I love the Southwest commercials. You remember those? Watch a couple of them just to refresh your memory. With this controller, your character will mimic your exact motions. See? Sweet. Now throw me a pitch, just like we're outside. (laughs) Want to get away? You've decorated in here. Want to get away? I don't think you're supposed to put coins in there. Want to get away? (laughs) Turn to Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about today is one of those want to get away moments. Mark chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Two stories we're going to look at today. Powerful stories. Verse 21, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark says, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large cow- crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. Now, there was a synagogue leader. His name was Jairus, and he came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he kept begging him, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and be alive. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, give give you some context to kind of refresh your memory. Remember, Jesus just, uh, we don't know exactly how long, but it wasn't 
too many days or uh, probably too many days henceforth that he crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, remember? Had a storm, scared these sailors spitless. They thought they were going to die. And then they finally get their adrenaline down, their courage up, and they're faced with, they, they, they get the shores and this wild, crazy demoniac greets them. And now they're, you know, the, the adrenaline is rising again. And so now they get done, they deliver this guy, and they kind of, oh, good, Lord Jesus, let's just take a little ministry break. And what does Jesus say? Let's get back in the boat. Oh, great. And so they cross the, they, they, they cross the Sea of Galilee again, and they head back to the, probably the northern regions of Capernaum. Now they arrive, and Jesus' fame is just spreading. I mean, he has reached now rock star status. He's immediately gulfed by this large crowd, and probably the Galilean paparazzi have shown up because, man, he's just getting more and more famous and popular. They've heard about Jesus. You know, there's people there that probably just want to rub shoulders with him, and then there's others, you know, kind of hanging on to say, man, I just want to kind of catch the aura of this religious superstar. Most of them probably really aren't coming to be healed. They're probably not coming because they recognize their personal need for Jesus. They just, you know, maybe, hey, maybe we'll catch a miracle, man. Get to talk about it. We saw him. We were there. So, but this passage as we go through it, you're going to see it's filled with, with deep and great pathos and strong emotion. These two stories as we get through them, are going to be placed in juxtaposition side by side purposefully. And I see, we're going to see a lot of similarities and a few differences that really are important. So see now, Jesus has arrived. He's in this huge crowd and Jairus, who is a temple leader, approaches him and he falls at Jesus' knees and he begs Jesus to come to his house to touch his sick little dying girl because this guy knows he's done everything that he can used all of the influence, all the money that he has or could use to help his sick and dying daughter. Well, Jesus says, okay, let's go. And he starts walking to Jairus' house through the crowd. Now, you have to understand, loved ones, that that Jairus is a synagogue leader. He's he's, he's affluent. He's well-to-do. He is influential. He influences people. He's the upper crest of Jewish society. He's well-read, highly respected, dignified. He is not the kind of guy that's going to be going around bowing and begging anybody for anything. But he does Jesus. And you got to remember that Jesus had this rocky relationship with the synagogue rulers. Remember, they are the ones that dismissed his message in him and ridiculed him and talked him down because they were jealous of his growing popularity and his message of love and grace. So he'd kind of been removed and, you know, and ostracized from a lot of synagogues throughout Israel by this time. And Jesus challenged them as well. And remember, it was Jewish officials like Jairus who constantly opposed Jesus and eventually were the ones that put him on the cross to die. So you got to know, Jairus would have avoided Jesus at all costs unless it was to take him on, to confront him, and to challenge who he was and his message. Ah, but now he's desperate. Isn't it true? It really doesn't matter because he's desperate, because he's got this sick girl and she's on his deathbed. It really is a true saying that says desperate people 
will do desperate things. And this man is desperate. Well, if you would pick it up in verse 25, and it says, now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years. Remember bleeding? Okay. She was bleeding for 12 years, and she endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had, and she was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. So Jesus is now en route. He's walking with Jairus, this man, to heal his daughter. So enter stage right, interruption from this woman with a a bleeding gynecological issue she's had for 12 years. And we know from the Leviticus passage, not only is it physical suffering and issues, but now she has been deemed unclean for 12 years. So what does that mean? Well, it means she's a social outcast. She couldn't marry. She couldn't have children. And those two things were, every, were life to a first century Jewish woman. She was spiritually marginalized because she was not allowed in the temple, in the place of worship where at that time, whereas we understand God's presence lives and dwells within us in the New Testament because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we see here what? Well, the tabernacle was the place where people would go to experience God's presence, and she couldn't go. So she's a social outcast. She's spiritually marginalized, and now she's financially diminished. She's drained, not only daily drained physically for 12 years, but now she's been drained financially at the hands of doctors. Uh, the, The word there, Mastiz, it, it means, it, it's a very graphic word. It kind of means like she's tortured at these guys' hands. That's literally, in terms of trying to get help, she just grew worse. And not only did she physically grew worse, but her money was wasted on doctor after doctor after doctor. And you got to understand, it's kind of, I guess, similar to today in some ways, that there's good doctors, and then, but back in that time, uh, they also had doctors that said they were doctors, but they were almost more like magicians. Uh, they were charlatans. They'd come up with, they were, they were like snake oil salesmen. They'd come up with crazy concoctions and superstitions. Uh, a couple of them that I read about. One of these guys said, and, I, you know, and they probably charged a pretty good fee because they're, quote, a doctor. One guy said this, or one guy, whoever, whatever, they said, you would carry an ostrich egg in a linen bag in summer and a cotton rag in winter. That's how you would get healed from something like this. Another one said you would, uh, you would carry a barley corn which had been found in female donkey dung. That would be the process of medicinal healing. Wow, take me to those doctors right now, you know? <laughs> And you probably had to go find it out of the <clears throat> excrement, but we won't go there. So she, she suffered much. So her supposed cures really became her enemies and, uh, and really it didn't help her from the disease itself. So pick it up in verse 27. Having heard about Jesus, this famous spreading, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For he said, if I, can just, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. So en route, she kind of 
sneaks up on Jesus. Now, remember, she's a Jewish woman. She knows the scripture. She would have been familiar with Malachi. Because see, when, when that, 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 that story of, from Malachi where it says that the son of righteousness will come with, eagle, with, with wings of healing, corners, the same word used for corners, there began to be a story that circulated at that time because the Jewish people were so looking for the Messiah. They said, you're going to know the Messiah because he's going to come and he's going to have on his prayer shawl. And on the corners of that shawl is going to be the sidzit. But in the corner, if you can touch it, there's going to be healing in the corner if you just touch it. That literally become part of the story and the anticipation of the coming Messiah back then. So you have to know this woman is aware of that story, that scripture And she sees, she's heard about Jesus, and now she sees him, and he's probably walking with his prayer shawl, and she says, I believe he's the Messiah. He's the one. And if you catch the language there in verse 28, she says, if I can just touch his robes, I will be made well. What you you don't pick up is the Greek tense, and, and Mark does some phenomenal things throughout this passage, and really throughout his book, using tenses. And what she's really saying, it's kind of like she's building up her, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch him, if I can just get to him, if I can just touch him. And so she comes, loved ones, with just an ounce more courage than fear. And I don't know about you, but that's oftentimes what faith is made up of. It's just, I'm going to do this. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm just going to believe. I'm going to do it. So verse 29, she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. She breaks through the crowd. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. And at once, Jesus realized in himself that the power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd, and he said, who touched my robes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you. And again, I'll note the, the, the tense of that. You, 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 who, how can you say who touched me? So Jesus was looking around. He's scanning the horizon to see who had done this. And, and, and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him and said to him, told him the whole truth. Oh, and Jesus goes, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. So you got to see this. There's a a crowd. They're using the word thronging. I mean, they're pressing. and It's almost like a, a human wave of pushing Jesus. But she breaks through the crowd. She touches him, and immediately the bleeding stops, and she's free. And that word there, the power, the idea of the power of God, it's dunamis. It's this explosive power that comes out of Jesus. Literally, he feels it to the point where he's probably weakened so that she can be strengthened. And you see a kingdom theme here here that we've been reading now for a few weeks from chapter 4, chapter 5, where the kingdom of God comes to bring dunamis, to bring power to our lives and to the situations that, that we face. 
We saw the power that Jesus comes and brings the dunamis over creation and nature to calm a storm. We see the power in dunamis that Jesus comes to break the demoniac and the anti-kingdom and to overcome the evil one for us. And now we see the power over disease. And in just a few minutes, we'll see the power to overcome death. But what I want you to see here is the goodness of Jesus. He realizes he's been touched and he looks around and he goes, who touched me? He wants to know. See, Mark's graphic use of tenses is getting enlightened here because he's really, what, what the disciples are really saying, Jesus, come on, Jesus, hey, give me a look at the crowd, look at the crowd. They're continually touching you, they're continually pushing you, throwing you. Jesus, how can you even ask that? This craziness. You can't tell who touched you, but Jesus says, I want to know. I want to put a face with the healing. This had to have been uh, intense. Everyone is looking around to find the person that Jesus touched, but Jesus isn't going to let her disappear. Can you, can you kind of pick up the drama? So Jesus is scanning the crowd. This isn't just one of his little do a Messiah tricks and heal and move on and show what he can do. He wants to put a face to the healing, to the woman. Now think about her. She is scared to death. Why? She's got no business being in a crowd like that. She's got no business touching a rabbi like that because she knows that once she touches that rabbi or touches anybody else and they find out, automatically they become unclean. And she gets healed. And all of a sudden, who did it? You want to talk about a want to get away moment? This is hers. She's about to be exposed. Before all the people. See, she wants to touch Jesus and sneak sneak off. She kind of wants to steal a little bit of a healing because she knew that touching Jesus would make him unclean and everybody else. So she's scared physically and emotionally. Uh, maybe some of you come to church and you're a little scared. You kind of want to sneak in. Come late after the music started and I close in prayer and you're sneaking out. You just kind of want to grab a, a little bit of spiritual significance and maybe go unnoticed. Uh, if, if you're new and, you know, and just checking Jesus out and trying to figure out where it fits in your life, where he fits in your life, and check Creekside out, Great. One of the things that we really don't do is we don't put a lot of pressure on people. We don't suffocate. We don't, you know, we're not the hounds of heaven. They're going to track you down. We will challenge you, like right now. But, but some of you, you've been around here for a while. And, and Jesus has kind of been nudging you to begin to engage in what he's doing in your life and maybe even in the life of Creekside. And he's saying, you know what, it's time that you don't just kind of come in stealth. But you begin to get known and be known. You begin to get to be, get to know and be known by Jesus in a deeper way. By people in a deeper way. Because that, is, that, that becomes part of the essence of the Christian faith. Be known by him, be known by people. Give yourself to him, to people. 
But notice what Jesus says. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Uh, no, 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 no. Don't mistake, young lady. It wasn't the shawl. It was the son of righteousness with healings in the corners of his life, not a shawl. Jesus wants to make sure that people know that this isn't just some kind of shenanigan or uh, tomfoolery or, or trickery. Verse 34, he says, he made you whole. He saved you from your physical affliction. Then he says just about the same thing again, but it's written in the present imperative meaning. He says, you're going to continue now to be in health. It's not just a, you know, an hour shot, or it's not like some of these, you know, these uh, faith healer charlatans that kind of say, oh, you're healed, and you get away from the adrenaline and the hope, and, and, and don't get me on that, but this is the real deal. You are healed, and he says, peace. You know, go in peace, shalom. I've given you wholeness. I love that. You're going to be, you're going to have harmony in your life now, peace in your life, not just the absence of conflict, but there's going to be shalom. There's going to be, there's just going to be this harmony with God and with people and really with yourself because you're not going to get up every day with this, in this diminished capacity. So she, what does she do? She responds to Jesus and she falls at his feet, oh, just like Jairus. And I notice what happens. I love, the, I love this. What does she do? She tells him the whole truth. Jesus wants to know who it was, and she says, I want to tell you the whole truth. So she starts unpacking 12 years. It's almost as if she has this, you know, this emotional constipation, this physicalness that just comes out. There's this flurry flow of this is what happened, Jesus, and Jesus. Have you ever noticed somebody when they get excited, they talk faster? And they talk more, and sometimes they give more details. I work with somebody like that. I love it. <laughs> and, 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 and everything gets faster, and, and more and more and more details. This is what's happening here. Now, that's an important thought, because let's pick it back up here in verse 35. While he was still speaking... People from the synagogue leader's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any more? So back to Jairus. This lady's telling him the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the background, the details. She's fearful now. She's free and she's happy. Now think in juxtaposition the joy of her life at that moment. And imagine you're Jairus. It's your daughter. You know she's dying. The doctors have said, give it up. Your only hope is what? He says, I'm going to go to Jesus. And so he's sitting there going, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming with me. Yes. And then there's this woman. (laughs) And and Jesus stops and he heals her. And then he wants to hear her story. And she begins to unpack it. I can just imagine Tyrus going... Uh, Listen, Jesus, I got a girl. We don't need to hear her story. Are you you tracking with me? Let's keep moving. Can we just push through this, Jesus, my daughter? And then he gets that news. He's dead. 
Verse 36, but when Jesus overheard what he said, he told the synagogue leader, he says to Jairus, he looks at him, don't be afraid. Only believe. Let's keep going. Then he says he didn't let anybody accompany him except Peter, James, and John, who was James' brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion. People are weeping and they're wailing loudly. And he went in and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. Verse 40, they started laughing at him. The language here says he put him outside. It's almost as if he just wanted to grab him and say, get out of here. Get away. Move on. I don't want to hear you scorning. I don't want to hear you laughing. I got business to do. And so he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he entered the place where the child was and he took the child by the hand, said to her, Talitha Kuam, which is translated little girl, I say to you, get up. So immediately the girl got up and she began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. And he gave him strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. See, he didn't let anybody follow them in except his disciples. He saw these people wailing and crying. See, in this culture, what you would often do is you would hire paid mourners. And that first day of death, they would actually go through the street with a dead body and let people know that there was a death and you could hear them coming from all over because these people were loud, screaming, yelling, flailing their bodies, crying out. Uh, I, I don't know who, what would make you want to go into that kind of a career, uh, but I guess it worked for some. But she responds to Jesus and and we see this metaphor of sleep that's used by Jesus here and it's used by other New Testament authors. It's really a metaphor for the time in between death and, and resurrection. And, and see these mourners, they're professionals, so they knew that this girl was dead. That's why um, you know, they were laughing at Jesus and Jesus knew she was dead. But Jesus also knew that he was gonna resurrect her. Because he says, I'm a, the kingdom of God is coming and it's gonna overcome death. And it's really sweet because you got to get the picture here. If you're a parent, you understand how this looks. Uh, Many of us have gone in, awakened our kids for school or getting up early for something. And you know how you do it when they're younger. You just kind of rub their back a little bit, talk softly. Isaac, Isaac, wake up. Hey, wake up, little buddy. See, that's what Jesus is doing in front of these people. And he's speaking his, his language, Aramaic, which would have been his native tongue. And he's just speaking to this little girl tenderly, and he's resurrecting her as if he's awakening her from her sleep. And then what I love what Jesus does, he's so spiritual, but he's so practical. He says, oh, by the way, he's just healed or raised her from the dead. He goes, why don't you get her some soup? Can I just tell you something? Uh, spirituality should be very practical. 
There are things that Jesus does. But if you really study closely, don't don't get caught up thinking it's a bunch of spiritual hocus pocus. Because while he does a spiritually dynamic thing, it's almost always followed up or preceded by something very practical. And a lot of Christ followers forget that. That you have to dovetail the spiritual and the practical. And I'll I'll get into that sometime. I don't have time to digress and really unpack what I mean by that today. But I see it all the time in pastors that I work with. They really are. They're so heavenly minded. They're really not very earthly good. They expect Jesus to do everything and they just sit, pray, and read their Bible. And you cannot read the scriptures, loved ones, and think that's what's going to do it. In your marriage, with your kids, at your job, in your relationships. It takes the spiritual touch of Jesus, but it takes the denim and shoe leather of your wife to walk it out. Well, let me get to a couple of quick things here before we're done and move to the next part. Mark is a great writer. I want you to see this 12-year intersection. Mark's a great writer as you notice the similarities between the two. Both are female. Jesus calls both of them the older lady and the young girl daughter. Both are unclean. They're untouchable. One has an issue of blood which couldn't be touched. One was dead which you weren't supposed to touch or you'd be unclean. But both are touched and made whole by the Uh, son of righteousness, Jesus. One had 12 years of joy and fun and life. One had 12 years of difficulty and misery. And Mark is making a very strong statement here. He says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. The untouchable can be touched. The clean, the unclean can be made clean. A man of the upper echelon of society and a woman of the lower echelon of society can commingle, come together, and experience hope at the very same degree. Everybody is unilaterally equal at the cross, at the place, at the person of Jesus Christ. And where there is death, there can be life. That's what the kingdom of God has come to do. Then and now. And see, loved ones, that's what we promote. The king who is the king, Jesus, of his kingdom. Where there is death, there is life. Where there is darkness, there is light. Where there is hopelessness, there is is hope. So, I want you to see the heart of God, Jesus here. Mark is always reminding us, Jesus is God. He came to show us God. Sometimes we talk and we forget that Jesus is God. The reason he came is because in the Old Testament, it wasn't good cop, bad cop. It's that God finally said, I gotta give an expression of myself, not just to have somebody come and die for their sins. As was, was as, as first seen in Genesis chapter 3, but I've got to have somebody who shows the heart of the Father. And so he sends Jesus. So we see Jesus here in all his goodness and all his grace. He's not, God is not some distant force out there. He's not somebody that's ticked off at humanity or mad at you because you did something or said something this morning. 
He is a heavenly God Father. Hebrews 1 tells us that as we see Jesus, we see God because he is the expressed image of the Father because he's God. There's this triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus gave flesh to who God is. This refers, this expressed image refers to the method used to imprint coins in biblical times where a piece of metal would be pounded against a stamp of the head of Caesar making an expressed image of Caesar. Although that stamp was on two separate coins and the, the entities were both the same, Caesar, Caesar. And God says, Mark is saying here, I want you to see the heart of God. Don't miss it in Jesus because he's God. See, Jesus shows us as God is open, warm, scanning the crowd. Hey, listen, did you know he's scanning the room this morning for you? Some of you might be trying to hide. Crowd this size, it's a little easy. But what does he do to this woman? He calls her daughter. It's the only woman Jesus calls daughter. I bet that's the nicest thing that any man has said to her in well over 12 years. See, too often we come to church and we forget that we're sons and daughters of God. See, we come, we come to God and sometimes we just want his touch. Sometimes we just, we come to church, we want something. We read the Bible, God, give me something. We just want to get from him. We want to get healing. We want to get direction for our next step. We want to get power for a living. God, just encourage me today. I've got a tough day. And those are not wrong, loved ones. Those are good. That's what our God wants to do and he wants to give to us. But sometimes we just go in and we want to get and consume and slip away. And see, that's not the ultimate purpose. God wants to be known in your life and he wants you to know him. Jesus is not a heavenly vending machine to get power from, to get love from, to get grace from, to get money from, to get goods from. He is a giver, but his greatest desire, hear me, is to be with you. He's scanning and he says, wow, Greg, are you with me? I want you to be with me. Brittany, are you with me? Are you spending time with me? Or are you just trying to get That's what he wants. He wants you. That's why he doesn't just heal and move on with this lady. Think of being a parent. You want to bless your kids. You want to give them everything they could ever want. But what do you really want? You love those times where they just come up and sit on the couch next to you, whether they're five or 15. Hey, mom, hi, dad. Just want to hang with you. What? Are you kidding me? And you go, yes. And sometimes we forget that's what our, our Lord wants. Where do you need to no longer act or simply be a com- consumer or even a servant, but to be a son or a daughter? Never forget he wants to be with you. The second thing is about timing here. Did you get it? The woman is sick for 12 years, then she's healed. The girl is healed after she died at 12 years old, 
She probably wasn't sick very long. It's hard for us to grasp this, loved ones. Hear me. God has no favorites. No favorites. Don't we all have a different sense of time? For some of us, on time is 10 minutes late. For some of us, on time is 10 minutes early. For some of us, on time is whenever I get there. Some of us on time is, I'm not going to show up and it's no biggie, you know? I mean, we all have a different sense of time. And hear me, we look at God and we think based on his time, this God who's infinite. I don't think he, I don't think he enters into the scope and sequence of time as we do. And we see here in juxtaposition, side by side, these two different timings. Why did it take Jesus 12 years for this woman and why did it just take him maybe a day for this girl? I don't know. And they don't give us an answer. One author said it this way, if Jesus was a doctor, if this would have happened today and Jesus was a doctor, he would have been sued for malpractice because he healed the one with the chronic disease before healing the one with the acute disease. But you know what I really think? I think he was at work doing something in Jairus' life. Digging a little deeper in the wells of his soul and spirit and trust for him. You mean God plays with us that way? No, I don't think he's playing with us. I think we think that. Because our expectations, and and really we wouldn't say this, but our demands of Jesus are so much. See, true faith isn't believing Jesus will do what you want. True faith is believing Jesus will do what's right. And we don't get that. Because we believe what's right is what we want. And that's, not, and that's not the way God operates. So we all have a different sense of time, but Jesus is always on time. And the last thing is, is sickness and healing. Jesus responds to both of their faith. Here's a man who's come to the place where he knows he can't solve his problem, the doctors couldn't. The woman, she can't solve her problem, the doctors can't. And just because, listen, just because, this is two examples Just because a person believes in the power of Christ, that doesn't mean healing will always happen the way we think it should. We've prayed for people and they were healed. And we've prayed for people and they weren't. I have a lot of godly friends that have not been healed physically and they've died. Things didn't play out the way that I prayed and wanted, nor did they for them and their families. Most of us have experienced that. I wish I could stand here and give you a whole bunch of really great answers. But there's way more questions than there are answers. And remember, Jesus did not heal everybody that he came in contact with. If you really read the Gospels, you'll see that. And I can't tell you why, because he could have, just like he could today. See, love, I mean, surrender is a difficult word in our culture. Jairus and the woman surrendered. That was hard for both of them in very different ways, wasn't it? But once they came to the point, nothing else mattered. Ultimately, your surrender is this. Jesus, I trust you with me and my life. So be it. I will pray in faith, I will believe, I will just believe, have faith. 
but I trust you. I make no demands. Because hear me, every one of us, if we know Jesus, gets healed ultimately. Because there's more to this life or there's more to life than just this life. And you can say, well, preacher, that sounds like holy hopefulness. Okay, I've got it. And I'm gonna hang on to it. Amen? That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna conclude with worship. Go about 10, 12 minutes. And this is what I wanted to do. I'm gonna, uh, Trina and I, I, I don't know how many will be, so, but we'll just stay as long as we need to. And I didn't really plan on others, so maybe if you wanna come and help us pray, that'd be great. We're gonna stand right over there. And we're gonna pray in faith today for people. I'm gonna anoint you with a little Megan Lyerly's oil container because James 5 says that, uh, that we can anoint with oil and pray the prayer of faith and believe for God to touch, Jesus to touch us. So Trina and I are gonna be right over in this little corner here during worship, and if you wanna be prayed for, we're not doing it up front, but it's still, you gotta get up and go. <laughs> but maybe this is your time to break through some of your fear and just courageously say, you know what, Jesus, I need to trust you. And we'll be over there to pray for you.